Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston. This special project, the Diet Climate Connection, is funded by the Henry P. Kendall Foundation, the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, the Lintelac Foundation, and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. I think students are deeply moved by the interconnection of issues that come around the table when we're talking about food. I also think, to be perfectly honest, students want and need to be part of something bigger than themselves. College students confront the environmental toll of the foods we eat. You're listening to the Diet Climate Connection, a special project from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. The generation now coming of age on college campuses gazes into a future that is weighed down by student debt, a dispiriting job market, and a political system so mired in dysfunction it can seem incapable of solving our core problems. Add to this horizon a threat that increasingly concerns many young people, the ravages of climate change. This is Carleton College, a small liberal arts campus in the historic river town of Northfield, Minnesota, less than an hour's drive south from Minneapolis-St. Paul. The students here reflect a national trend. Young people, more than other age groups, believe that individuals can make a difference in global warming by practicing behaviors that reduce their personal environmental footprint. The students plug into that conversation in different ways. Dan Bergeson is an administrator at Carleton. Every, every winter we have, the students have what's called the Green Wars. And in the month of February, they compete by, by residential location for who can use the least amount of energy during the month. So they turn off all their lights and they, they, uh, they try to use as little heat as possible. And, and it, I mean, it's, the entire campus gets gets involved in that one. Carleton College also takes seriously an aspect of the climate change problem that has gained increasing attention, the role of our food system. Industrialized agriculture is a heavy emitter of greenhouse gases that trap heat in our atmosphere and contribute to climate change. This occurs in operations at the farm, in food processing, and in transport. Up in St. Paul, Jonathan Foley directs the Institute on the Environment at the University of Minnesota. Yeah, a lot of people ask me, you know, like, so what can I do? Um, You know, there's the local food movement, organic movement. These are all good things to do. But I think the things that are probably most effective when I look at the numbers of how do you feed more people with limited resources and how do you not harm the environment, um, basically meat and food waste are the two things we can control a lot of in our daily lives. And in our institutions, not just our house, but where we work, where we go to school, where we go to eat, what restaurants we favor, and so on. Climate scientists have focused on livestock production, especially the way it's practiced on large-scale factory farms, as a huge source of global warming pollution. 
nitrogen-based fertilizers used to grow crops that feed the animals emit an especially potent heat-trapping gas. And with tens of billions of livestock on the planet, the animals' own excretions add up to an unpleasant and powerful emission of greenhouse gases. Many studies show that among foods, the highest environmental toll comes from production of red meat and dairy. John Foley. Depending on your perspective and what, what it is that's important to you, might be first to think about, well, how many meals of red meat do I have a week? Uh, can I cut that down? Because there's you know, pretty unequivocal evidence now from a health point of view that eating too much red meat is not healthy for you. Uh, same thing with the environment, that red meat is not always bad for the environment, but if the way we're producing it most of the time is pretty harmful and very inefficient. So can we cut back from you know, eating steak every day, if you do, or hamburgers every lunch, and maybe alternate that with something else? Um, I'm not a vegan or vegetarian, but you know, I pay attention to my meat consumption a lot. I'm more of an omnivore, I guess, or flexivore, whatever you want to call it. And um, you know, maybe dial it back a little bit for health reasons, for environmental reasons, and so on. Medical experts agree that with a balanced diet, vegetarians or even vegans who exclude all animal products can be entirely healthy. Carleton College in Northfield prioritizes its commitment to sustainability. The campus has its own wind turbine and dorm buildings that are LEED certified as energy efficient. And in recent years, it's modified the dining service as well. Administrator Dan Bergeson. We've been taking steps and be becoming more and more environmentally conscious over the past decade. And when our students came to us and said, we'd like to see this, this energy also expanded into the dining program. Could you help us do that? About 90% of our students are in the residential dining program. So it's very important to us that they have a satisfactory experience. And if eating locally is part, part of what they're looking for, then we want to provide that for them. Eating locally produced food is a major focus for people concerned with the diet-climate connection. Although not all long-distance hauling of food is inefficient per item transported, a great deal of fuel can be expended in shipping foods, frequently a thousand miles or more from farm to plate. So Carlton has an increasing emphasis on supporting local farmers and even on growing some of its own food. Katie Blanchard, a recent Carleton graduate, joined me in the garden at Carleton. Since I was a student, the garden slowly expanded to be what I think is well over half an acre of total land in the backyard, and then we have an additional plot that's back on the edge of the prairie for growing, starting in the spring, a lot of fall season crops because we want to be able, the students now want to be able to produce things that can actually be used in the dining hall. Today, Katie works for a campus-based effort known as Real Food Challenge. Students at more than 200 U.S. colleges participate. The group's goal is ambitious, to shift a billion dollars worth of campus food budgets away from industrialized farms and highly processed food and towards local, environmentally responsible, healthy, and humane food sources. She finds real food in the school garden. So what are the foods that are produced here? A lot, literal tons of tomatoes that both get used fresh and turned into sauce, squash, um, garlic, herbs, peppers. I'm hearing a lot of pizza ingredients. 
Sure, yeah, there's a lot of pizza eaten on a college campus. <laughs> there's a strong interest by the student body in growing crops that are eaten in the dining hall here? Very much so, remarkably so. There's really a desire, because we're in an agricultural place and because there's a lot of interest in sustainable agriculture on the campus and within the student body, there's a real interest in growing things that can actually be used. Many people concerned about global warming are just beginning to understand the links between the foods we eat and the extreme weather associated with climate change. The lashing storms, blistering heat waves, droughts, and other effects like wildfires. Some have called these weather conditions the face of climate change. I sat down with students and staff at Carleton College to learn about their journey to greater consciousness about our food. Really, my story begins with how I was raised uh, in the microwave generation. Um, I grew up on a almost solidly a junk food diet. And it wasn't really until my 20s that I started connecting to my own health and how I felt. And um, through my 20s and 30s, um, really started making the changes to eating organic food. And I noticed that I felt differently. And I always say to my kids when I make smoothies with vegetables in them in the morning, it's like giving your body a hug. And they look at me and laugh. <laughs> but um, so, so I was personally motivated initially. And then, you know, as I've become more aware of global global food issues and local food issues, um, my motivations have um, changed and, and maybe flourished or broadened. And I see that everyone eats. And if we are what we eat, then food really matters on every level. So I'm a transfer student. Um, I went to Stony Brook University, uh, which is a SUNY uh, State University of New York. Their food culture was very different than ours. The students there were, you know, sort of like the matrix. They just didn't, this was not happening for them. And here... Meaning they just, they weren't thinking about this. They weren't thinking, it was, I mean, a lot of students were, you know, ordering pizza, uh, ordering Chinese food, ordering, you know, it it was not a foodie culture in the least. Um, Though that is where I became aware. It was sort of this food dystopia almost sort of allowed me to be away, you know, I woke up. Um, I was walking in this dining hall, and um, these students were around, and they were handing out um, pamphlets uh, describing the conditions of factory farms. And so I order my chicken sandwich, and, um, you know, I'm sitting down, and I'm, I'm alone. I'm trying to go quickly. I have class, and so I'm reading this pamphlet. It's short, so I figure this will be fine to occupy my mind. And I'm reading it, and... I realized that I'm eating the chicken breast, which is about the size of a small laptop. It's large and unnatural. And it sort of clicks for me that I'm not eating something that's part of anything close to a natural process. And it's, I just looked around, and I'm like, there's nothing here that is close to this natural process. And that worried me. That bothered me. And that's when I started getting interested in this. And so what happens in your life the if you're raised around you know factory farmed food around processed food around fast food that's normal and natural for you um and so you really it you usually have to step outside of yourself 
to really understand the whole system. I learned a lot about how our food system operated and how our uh, how it related to the environment and to our personal health and what a crisis we're facing with climate change and uh, other environmental ills. And I felt like I had no, there's nothing I could do about it. And I was really upset about it until I realized that there are ways that when we work together to sort of debunk uh, the messages we're being sent about the type of food we're buying, we can make informed decisions. I mean, our county has bad water because of the industrial runoff from the plants and the waste that the animals make. Um, and that's, that's an issue. I mean, uh, so water quality, soil quality, erosion. I mean, there are a whole host of reasons. I mean, the Amazon is getting cut down so we can grow corn or we can grow pastures for cows. And I think the Amazon is more important. So it's a, it's a movement that affects the world in a lot of ways. So it's not just uh, global warming. But that is, again, that is what brought me into it. I did some research and I found out that your carbon footprint, the largest, the big toe, if not the heel, I mean, the largest section of it is what you eat. And uh, so that's what really, you know, I woke up and then I got into it. I dived into that section of the pool. I don't think I've ever heard that before, the, the, the toe of your footprint. What a great image. <laughs> Taylor Owen, Lindsay Guthrie, and Kelly Sherman at Carleton College. You're listening to The Diet Climate Connection, a documentary project from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. At our website, you can obtain a free download of this program and other diet climate segments as they become available. You can also download our free printable booklet, The Climate-Friendly Food Guide, to help you make Earth-smart, practical choices. For all this, please visit humanmedia.org. Katie Blanchard of the campus organization Real Food Challenge. I think students are deeply moved by the interconnection of issues that come around the table when we're talking about food. I also think, to be perfectly honest, students want and need to be part of something bigger than themselves. Learning about the world can put you in a place of despair. Many people around the table have shared some of that story. So when I work with students who have, by whatever way, their own experience or something they read or a class, learned about issues, the realm of them somehow relating to food, and then I'm working with them to say, you and the people you're working with can absolutely make a difference because you're a part of this institution that has immense power in the food system, it's an incredibly transformative experience for them. They just w want to be able to be believed in and trained and encouraged and supported to make real change. And it's such a nexus and leverage point for real change. Starting around 2007, the Carleton College administration took a hard look at the contract it had at the time with a dining service provider. Three meals a day were served to about 1,500 students. Campus food activists pressed for the college to purchase at least 20 percent of the food it served from local suppliers. A task force of faculty, staff, and students made field trips to other campuses near and far to explore the options. Dan Bergeson directs auxiliary services at the school. And in my opinion, we had a, 
a, a fine dining program at the time, but they were, there were some things that they were simply, in their corporate uh, umbrella, they were not able to do. They weren't able to uh, go up the road to the local farmer and, and just buy produce off the farm. Their corporate uh, environment wouldn't allow them to do that. Carlton switched to an unusual, environmentally conscious provider known as Bon Appetit Management Company based in Palo Alto, California. The company says it attains at least 20 percent local purchases in the dining facilities it operates at 400 corporate and campus locales, including Carlton College since 2008. Wearing his white chef's jacket in one of the school's dining halls, Michael Del Cambre is Bon Appetit's executive chef at Carlton. He is sensitive to the environmental footprint of the food served. We try and stay away from some of the higher carbon. We've got you know beef and cheese galore here in the off season, you know, in our downtime in the winter. Um, but we're really trying support as much vegetarian and veganism as, as possible because of our we've got such an ethnic crowd here too. Vegetarianism, I mean, whether it's South African, South American, Middle Eastern, you know, it, it's all based around the vegetarian-style diet, even you know, the Mediterranean foods. So we're able to keep a lot of people coming back for foods, even though they don't, I don't even think they notice that they're missing meat much. You'll find today we don't have our hamburger over here. We have grilled chicken and a carrot burger. You know, carrots and onions and breadcrumb and egg and mayonnaise and... It's a tasty alternative. They don't even know what they're missing. Nine times out of ten. You're always going to have your hamburger crowd. I need my steak. And that's okay. But over the years, we've been able to decrease, you know, just the amount of meats we do by just genuine cooking. The lunch buffet the day I visited Carlton offered plenty of meat dishes, including chicken, ham, and pepperoni on the pizza. But the non-meat choices were diverse and tempting, including creamy vegetable lasagna, sautéed cabbage, roasted broccoli with Parmesan cheese, and couscous with tomatoes. Offering a gourmet assortment of plant-based dishes helps Bon Appetit follow its own 2007 policy of minimizing the environmental footprint of food it serves. To get there requires striking the right balance, says Mark Lachance, regional vice president of Bon Appetit based in Minneapolis. We've lowered our beef purchases by 33%. We've lowered our cheese purchases by 10%. We've lowered our tropical fruit fruit purchases by 50% since 2007. Why reduce tropical fruit? It's all ear 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 shipped, you know. So and anything that comes from the tropics, in, in order to, to get it here, they got to ear freight it. So the you know we we said, you know, let's let's reduce the, the amount of pineapple we serve in our cafes. Let's educate the the folks that you know that that local apple is probably better for your carbon footprint um, than that pineapple. We still we still serve pineapple, but we've we've educated our clientele to say to make better choices as it relates to their carbon footprint in our cafes. Um, and it's been, it's, it's, you know, nobody's missed the, the 33% beef that we've eliminated. We just, we, instead of serving hamburgers three times a week, we only serve hamburgers two times a week, you know. It may seem strange that individual food choices like pineapple or hamburger can make a difference in combating climate change. But an immense amount of energy is often used at various stages of growing, transporting, and cooking food items, not to mention processing, which guzzles fuel and often renders foods less healthy. 
Another goal of sustainable dining is to minimize waste. Katie McKenna is Bon Appetit's general manager at Carleton. As a company, Bon Appetit has a policy about batch cooking, which means we produce the food that we're serving in small batches so that it's fresher for the guests, but it also helps us reduce the waste. So as the guests, you know, you were in the dining hall earlier today and you saw there there's inconsistencies with the timing for the students to come in. And so when, when we know there are going to be a lot of students coming in, we have the chefs in the kitchen prepping food quickly, getting it out on the lines quickly. When it's a slower period, we reduce the amount, the batch sizes that we're making, and that helps us dramatically reduce the waste. I, I think on the, on the pre-consumer side of the, of the waste, we're, we're very, very efficient. Mark Lachance. The food before we serve it to the guest is pre-consumer waste. So back in the kitchens, producing and doing the prep work, um, a lot of cases we compost mo- most of the, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of our facilities here, for instance, at Carleton, you know, all of that, all of that food gets composted. It goes, gets picked up and taken to a composting site and they compost all of that. And, and, uh, um, you know, St. Olaf across the street has their own on, on campus composting facility where they compost 100% of the food scraps, both, both pre and post consumer, and it goes right back into the land and, and it's used in landscaping. It's used for fertilizer in, in our, in our student run garden over there. Um, so there's, you know, different levels of, of what we do with that waste. Bon Appetit's attention to the problem of waste is significant. A study by the National Institutes of Health calculated that a staggering 40% of food in the U.S. goes uneaten. And while some waste occurs in food production and preparation, a great deal of food ends up being discarded by end users when we are served or pile on more food than we need. Mark Lachance. I think the best way to address it is through an education process. And we band together, especially on these college campuses where, uh, where we're providing food services for. Um, students are, stu- these students are in tune with that. And, and, and on a lot, a lot of these campuses, they'll actually have um, you know, organizations um, that, that kind of monitor and track what people are putting on that conveyor belt at the dish drop area. Um, in some cases, they, they, they will stand at that dish drop area and educate their fellow students about, well, you know, why are you wasting that food? Just take what you need. You can always come back and get more. We've got a pasta, which is a, a vegan pasta. It's a, a whole wheat pasta today. We've got sauce marinara and a choice of the marinara or the alfredo sauce. We've got steamed cauliflower and carrots, which are made without gluten and a vegetarian. And as always, on our cochina stations here at Pizza, we have celiac-friendly pasta or pizza available on Palm Crest. Well, you have inspired me to dish them out and have my lunch. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. I'm Ben Doherty. We're in Northfield, Minnesota at Open Hands Farm. When we're in full bloom here, which vegetables uh, would one see? Just about everything that's traditionally, or some that aren't traditionally grown in Minnesota, um, except the ones that people think the most about, sweet corn, <laughs> we, uh, we opt out of, and um, we let other people do that. And potatoes, we only do a few of. But So we have literally asparagus to zucchini. We have <laughs> lettuce and uh, broccoli and 
uh, watermelons and cantaloupes and peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers and the whole lot. Ben Darty is a small-scale organic farmer working a 10-acre plot with his wife Erin Johnson. Some of their produce is trucked a short drive to be served at Carleton College. Erin is a former volunteer at AmeriCorps where she met organic farmers and was offered a job in what was to become her vocational calling. And the first day on the job, I said, oh, this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. Why? I had never farmed before. Um, it just felt right. It was, um, I had always wanted to do something that um, made a difference in the world. And um, activism was an option, but it, was, uh, it wasn't for me necessarily. And this is the way I felt like I could make a difference. Um, very small, you know, just like one, one piece of land at a time. But I felt like I could do something and to create healthy food for people and help create community. We really love it. It's, of course, it's difficult. And of course, there's financial worries and time worries, especially now with our daughter trying to figure out how to balance how to run the farm and spend time with our daughter, which I think is any working couple struggles or any working parent or couple struggles with that balance. Um, but yeah, we love love being able to be outside, have our lives so connected with, with the elements and with nature and with the weather. Um, it's just, it's such a gift to be able to walk out our door and, and go out and ha- have to listen to and watch the plants and the soil and the rain and the sky. And that's my job. And I think you people pay me to do this. This is great. <laughs> you know, um, of course there are downsides to that. Every farmer throughout every century has known that there are a lot of hard things about having your income and your, the food on your table dependent on the weather, um, which is where CSA comes in is one of the main benefits of CSA is that it, it really helps stabilize a, the, a farmer's income. CSA, or Community Supported Agriculture, is an increasingly popular system where a family pays an annual membership fee, typically a few hundred dollars, and is entitled to far more produce than the same amount would buy at most grocery stores. The CSA at Open Hands Farm has about 150 shareholder members. This guarantees income that allows the farmers to survive. When our CSA shareholders come and say, oh, I found this new recipe with your beets, and oh, it's the best thing ever, and just they're so excited, and then they share it with another shareholder in the room, and everyone gets excited about beets or or radishes, and it's just wonderful. Or when they come and they say their kids will only eat our carrots, or they'll only eat our spinach, you know. And I feel bad that in the winter, you know, we don't, they don't have our carrots or spinach, so then they won't eat vegetables. But it is a really neat thing knowing that the kids can taste the difference. I also really love um, the problem solving that goes along with farming. Um, you know, pretty much every single day there's something that comes up, whether it's weather or um timing or soil changes or something broke or whatnot and we have to figure it out on the spot and we you know especially with diseases and pests um, every year there's something new new sequence of events that comes together and we have to figure it out so what are we going to do now to create um, (laughs) disease-free healthy produce that we can actually serve to um, our, our members. Erin Johnson with her husband, Ben Doherty, at Open Hands Farm in Northfield, Minnesota. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg.
Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Special thanks to Tony Buck, Art Cohen, Lisa Mullins, and Bill Muma. Some musical selections by Gunnar Debosi. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. And remember, our climate-friendly food guide booklet can be downloaded free at humanmedia.org. This segment, part one of the Diet Climate Connection, is Humankind Program number 181. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.